Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Here's a wild thought. The last mitzvah of the Torah, the 613th commandment of the Torah, is actually to write a Torah scroll, to write a Sefer Torah. Now that can be kind of expensive or take a really long time because that means either that you hire someone to do it or you learn how to do it yourself. So that's, that's very lengthy. But the rabbis say that if you even just buy Torah books, that's actually fulfilling the mitzvah of writing a Sefer Torah. And certainly if you buy them and give them out, right? That's, that's, also, that's also the mitzvah of writing a Sefer Torah. But I want to say something more wild, which is that, you know, when you walk over the course of your lifetime, and this is, believe me, this is just me talking right now, but I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. You know, you can, you can take one step forward and stop. We all do that many times. Well, that's like you just wrote the letter Yud. <laughs> If you, if you walk in one direction and then you turn, or if you make a sharp turn, you just wrote the letter Dalit. If you kind of made a more casual turn, that's the letter Reish. Is it possible over the course of our lifetime, through just walking around, we are writing a Sefer Torah? And so the 613th commandment correlates with the last day of our life, right? Where each of us during our lifetimes through our activities, are actually writing Sefer Torahs. And maybe you know something? If you're really going through life with intention, you know, professional sofers, professional scribes, they don't just write one. They write many Sefer Torahs. Maybe over the course of your lifetime, you're writing many Sefer Torahs. Isn't that something? So the whole idea is to think, Holistically, I took a trip to New York and I had this kind of like opportunity that kind of just popped up, which was just, wow, okay. Someone asked me, will you teach an introduction to Hasidic thought class at Stern College? So tomorrow, and I was like, okay, <laughs> let's give it a go. So, so I, I showed up and this is the main thing that I wanted to share. And it's building off this idea of, with our actions, we're writing Sefer Torahs, okay? A lot of people, their relationship to God is when, say, a Torah book is open, or when they're in a shul, and maybe the prayer book is open. And so that, that's what it is. But what, what I would suggest to you, and I think that this is the basis of really all Hasidic thought right now, is that... The world itself is an open book. The world is the open book. And every single person is another letter in the Torah, right? So the people in front of you are the letters of the text, and the world itself is the book. And one of the beautiful teachings that comes from that is that if there's one letter missing from the Torah scroll, it's not kosher. And so if there's one of us missing among each other, then we're also totally incomplete. So it just tells you how essential every single person is. And so when you're interacting in this world, you're actually living the Torah. And what this does is it just expands your consciousness and it, it, it combats this temptation that we have, which is to think that God is an idea inside my mind. Where does God live? Well, I guess God, intellectually, I'll say God inhabits the universe. But really, where does God actually live? He's a thought in my head. And just one of my favorite things to say in life is, God is not a thought in your head. You are a thought in God's head, and God doesn't have a head. I, I don't think, every time I say that, it makes me so happy. <laughs> I can't even tell you. So we're in this month of Adar, right now, where we have to increase in joy. And I want to just tell you just something very mystical, okay? The very first commandment the Jewish people as a nation got was to make a calendar. And that is 
awesome because the way I had it explained to me, I forgot who said this, someone great, was that what is a slave not in charge of? Their own time. And so when we become a free people, what is the first thing God tells us to do? To sanctify time. That's the idea of making the calendar. Sanctify time. That's amazing. So since the name of the month that we left Egypt in is Nisan, Nisan is going to be the first month of the year. Very good. So now if you kind of think of it like a ladder from above to below, Nisan is going to be at the top. Now, what is the 12th month of the year? What is the month that's furthest away, all the way on the bottom? That's Adar. Now, isn't it interesting that Adar has the holiday of Purim? And what is Purim about? God, when he's totally concealed, right? God in his hiddenness, because it's the furthest away from the month of Nisan. What's Nisan about? Nisan has the word nes in it, which means open miracles. Not only that, but God's holiest name, the Yudke Vavke, has 12 different arrangements that you can do with it. Now, one of them is going to be the straight spelling of Yudke Vavke. Well, guess what month is Yudke Vavke without any mixing of the letters? Nisan. Why? Because Nisan is the month of total clarity. So now with that in mind, what do you think the arrangement of the Yudke Vavke is for Adar? Which would be, again, the month of total concealment, the month that's furthest away from the light. What do you think it's going to be? Well, I'll tell you what I thought. I thought, well, intuitively, it would probably be the Yudke Vavke backwards. Right? Because that's got to be one of the 12 too. And that actually makes a lot of sense because Yudke Vavke, that name of God means Rachamim, right? It's showing on love. And then if you spell it in the opposite direction, that shows on din or judgment. And Adar was the month that Haman wanted to exterminate the Jews. So it all makes perfect sense. It turns out it's not the opposite spelling. It isn't. But, but wait, wait, wait. I saw and I believe it was in the name of the Ari, the following thought. And this is going to tie into something from the Vilna Gon in a moment. Okay? Which is that originally, guess what the arrangement of the Yudke Vavke for Adar was? Yudke Vavke in the opposite direction. But the prayers of Mordechai and Esther were so great that they rerouted the spiritual DNA of the month. And now listen to what the Vilna Gon says. Why is this holiday called Purim? Lots. Right? Like a lottery. That Haman was a great sorcerer, like, like, really, like really knew how to tap into like the dark energy of the world. And that when he picked the 13th day of the month of Adar for the extermination of the Jews, that was actually a day it could have happened, God forbid. And what God did was he rose above the lots because he used lots to determine what that day was, the 13th day of the month of Adar. And that what God did was to rearrange the entire energy, the entire spiritual DNA of the month of Adar. So that it turns into a happy month. And now do you see how that totally ties into what we just said? How originally the Yudke Vavke was the opposite spelling? And how after the prayers of Esther and Mordechai, it got rerouted and reconfigured. 
and that the implication spread not just on the 13th day of the month, but once God reconstituted the spiritual energy of the month, the entire month itself became a happy month because the whole personality of the month changed. Now, I want to I wanna take it a step further because every single month also has a zodiac sign. And there is kosher Torah astrology. And we don't use the term zodiac sign, by the way. We say the mazel of the month. Remember, mazel comes from the Hebrew word for a drippy nose. <laughs> or it shares the same root. In other words, it's a flow. It's a flow. So, what, so when we're talking about the mazel of a month, we're asking what is the nature of the divine energy that's flowing that month. Now that, that in itself is interesting because it tells you that time itself has a personality. That no two moments are the same and no two months are the same. Every month has a different personality. Now that's all good, but you have to keep another thought in mind simultaneously, which is that time doesn't have power. Right? There is no power other than God. Now, there's something that I noticed the other day that kind of made me happy. There's a whole Torah liturgy, a, a whole Torah literature about turning ions into olives. <laughs> we talk about it from time to time. The letter Aleph is the number one, and it's silent. The letter Ayin is the number 70, and it's also silent. Now, conceptually, even though they're both silent, they're opposites. Because Aleph is the number one and stands for the oneness of God. Ayin is the number 70 and stands for the 70 nations. In other words, the illusion of multiplicity. And fascinatingly, Ayin is actually a Hebrew word which means your eye. Your eye perceives the illusion of many powers. That's one of the reasons why when we say Shema, which is all about God is one, we close our eyes so that we shield ourselves from the illusion that there's any power other than God. And as Rabbi Blech says, with our eyes closed, we tap into the oneness that informs all of reality. So we have a phrase called Ein Od Milvado. That's one of the big phrases, one of the big verses in the Torah. That means there is no power other than God. That Ein Od Milvado is like one of those verses that's right up there with Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. It's a big one. Like famously, the Briskarav told his children, when you're running through the field escaping bullets, like when people are firing guns at you and you're running down the field, say over to yourself over and over again, Ein od movado. There is no power other than God. Ein od movado. So I was thinking about it and I thought, wow. Ein od. There is no other. Ein begins with the letter Aleph. Ode is the letter ayin. When you say ain ode, there is no other, you are turning the ions into olives. Just another example. We have to compile a list. One day we'll just have one talk about all the turning ions into olives, but we can add that one to the list. Okay. So the idea is like this. Every month has its own energy. So how are we to, under, to understand that from an astrology, really, from a, a Torah standpoint? So I heard the same idea from Rabbi Sauer and Rabbi Tatz, so independent of each other. And I think it's a, this is just one of these great Torah explanations that you really should try to remember because it's taking a very large subject and boiling it down to one very simple piece of imagery. Imagine says Rabbi Tatz, you go into the supermarket and there's a metal can and you, you can't see into the metal can. What, what's being sold here? 
And the answer in this example is stewed tomatoes are in, the, in this metal can. How do you know? Because there's a label around the metal can that says stewed tomatoes. Now you know what's inside the can. Very easy, right? This is how astrology works. The arrangement of the stars in the sky at any given moment, that's the label on the can telling you what the nature of the divine energy that's coming down at that moment is. Do you get it? So where Saturn is, where Mars is, that's going to be the label on the can telling you what the nature of the divine energy is coming down at that moment. Okay, so every month is going to have a personality. And remember, we can't use these techniques. We can use the, these techniques to describe the nature of the month, but there's a Torah prohibition, one of the 613 commandments, against using it for fortune-telling. Now remember, we have a verse in the Torah that you have to be, you have to be a tam, you have to be pure and simple before God. And one of the ways that that's explained, that particular mitzvah is, you're not allowed to go to palm readers, psychics, tarot card readers, you know, um, phrenologists. How often do you get to use that word? <laughs> Those are the people who like feel your head and from the bumps on your head will predict your future, okay? So you can't go to any of these people to learn your future. Why? Because God wants us to have faith in him. And now let's take this one step further because this in itself is an interesting idea. God deliberately designed the universe in such a way that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, next year, five minutes from now. That was God's idea. That is not your own personal failing. It's not your own personal failing that you don't know what's about to happen next. That was God's idea, and he deliberately constructed the universe in that way so that we can have this type of relationship with him. Isn't that interesting? That's just another way of understanding life in this world. Okay. So what is the personality of Adar? What is the mazel of Adar? And it's the answer is what we would say in, in, in secular society, Pisces, or the fish. Now, I thought that that was kind of interesting. I never thought of it this way until this year. Because the month before Adar is Shvat. And what is Shvat? The water drawer. So do you see how you've got water drawer? And then the next month... You've got fish and water. Well, what's that relationship? Since that seems to be a very direct cause and effect. Well, the B'nai Asoskar takes it a step further. He says that the water drawer, also known as Aquarius, is actually the zodiac sign of the Jewish people. Why? Because the Talmud says whenever you see a discussion of water, it's really talking about Torah. Because we need Torah to live. And who are the people who are drawing Torah into the world? The Jewish people. So we are the water drawers. So now, again, track the visual, because the visual is telling you a story. Shvat, you're drawing water. The next month, we're fishing water. In other words, we become completely immersed in the Torah. And immersion in Torah is what? Joy. Because Adar is the month of joy. And now, if you dig just a little bit deeper, it's going to tell us, how do you immerse yourself in Torah? 
Well, we've already given a couple of examples, which is that you see the entire fabric of reality around you as the open book, that you see every human being as the letters of the text of the book, right? So that you're living inside the Torah. But here's another way. In the month of Shvat, and it says this right in the Torah itself, there's a verse that says, on the first day of the 11th month, Moshe Rabbeinu started saying over the book of Devarim. So Deuteronomy was said over, and remember, what is Devarim? Mishnah Torah. It's a repetition of the Torah. But it's a really interesting repetition of the Torah. Moshe is recounting all the events of the last 40 years and actually since the beginning of time. But there are new mitzvahs in Devar. So how do we understand that? And then how do we also understand the question of what's going on with Devarim? I thought all five books were the word of God. You're telling me four are the word of God and the fifth is the word of Moshe? I'm confused. <laughs> well, the first thing I'm going to tell you is if it's a repetition of the Torah, how are there new mitzvahs in it? Because, you know, sometimes you have to look twice at something to see something once. Sometimes you have to look at something again before you see something for the first time. That's a lot of life right there. Okay? The next thing I heard in the name of the Arbarbanel, which explains how is the book of Devarim said by Moshe, but simultaneously it's the word of God. He gives such, an, such a beautiful, clear answer. You just hear it and go, ah. He says, Moshe said it, and then God said, very good. Now write it down at my command. <laughs> And there you see that it's simultaneously the word of Moshe and the word of God. And now, instead of it being a letdown, that the first, like, the first four sequels were great, but the, the fifth one, don't, don't bother seeing that one, right? How is it that the fifth book of the Torah is not a letdown, but that it just sort of like goes all the way up? It's like a, it goes exponential. How is it that the Torah climaxes with the book of Devarim because you've got the fusion of human and divine consciousness. That's what's taking place in Devarim. Devarim, interestingly, is the only book of the Torah that begins with the letter Aleph. Right? We've got our Aleph again. In other words, what, how high was Moshe's prophecy? He was totally fusing his mind with the Aleph, the oneness of God. That's how God can say to him afterwards, very good, now just write it down. In other words, what is the goal of Torah? Not just to exist outside of us, but to be fused within us and to us have recognition of what it is that we are. We're made out of 613 parts. Those are the 613 commandments. In other words, that fusion is there already in our very being. And now we have to just go ahead and recognize what it is. And that's, that's how Devarim becomes the climax, the recognition of what's going on. You know, I once had a question. There was a period in my life where I would buy lottery tickets and I would stick them in my wallet and I would actually never to check to see whether I won or not. Because <laughs> I guess I thought that it was so unlikely uh, why even bother checking? And then I, then this question hit on me, which was, if someone has a winning lottery ticket in their wallet and never checked, maybe it's $100 million. If you have a winning lottery ticket in your wallet, but you never checked and you don't even know that it's a winner, are you wealthy or not? Well, you can say, yeah, I'm wealthy. I've got $100 million in my pocket. But if you don't know that you have $100 million in your pocket, are you wealthy or not? Probably not. So you see, awareness of your circumstances 
is the finishing touch of your own reality. And so Devarim is the comprehension of what's there. Okay. So now let's tie this back into Shvat and Adar. Okay? How do I get immersed? How do I become the fish and water of Adar and be so happy? Well, the previous month, I'm drawing water down into the world. But the previous month is when Moshe Rabbeinu said over the book of Devarim, which is the repetition of the Torah. When I go over the things that I learn in my mind, the Torah lessons that I learn, when I go over them, like Moshe is going over them in the month of Shvat, I become immersed. This is the critical missing stage for so many of us in our lives, which is that we're dedicated, we open up a book and we read it, we attend a class, but we don't think about what we read and we don't think about what we heard. And that is the critical step to become immersed, to become immersed. I'll tell you something and I'll just, I'll just really finish with this because this was a huge turning point in my life. I'll just build up to it a little bit. I remember when I was 13 years old, I was sitting with my sister at my kitchen table. And I asked her, I said, what's the difference between reform, because we grew up in a reform family, what's the difference between reform, conservative, and orthodox? And she said to me, well, the orthodox believe that God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai. And I said, oh, yeah, that's what I am. Right? I mean, there was nothing, nothing about our life or our home actually validated that. But, but I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't, don't, I don't want to hear the other stuff. That, that's what I am. I'm not sure where that recognition came from, but I believed it. I believed it to the point where I didn't want to hear anything more. Okay. Now, cut to 11 years later. I started keeping Shabbos when I was 24. I remember I, I lived in a place up in the Hollywood Hills with a bunch of comedy writers. We called it the Institute of Higher Leisure. <laughs> we used to throw crazy parties. There was like a swimming pool. We'd jump off the roof into the swimming pool, right? Like rent limousines for no reason. Like, okay, this was like... It was an interesting period. <laughs> and, and I remember this, I was just lying on my bed and I was thinking about God, right? At this point in my life, I was really like, my lifestyle was really the furthest away from being orthodox. And I always, that's why this Torah that I'm about to tell you but I'm going to tell you an event in a second, is so meaningful to me. I heard it from Reb Shlomo in the name of Reb Tzadok HaKoyen. He said the following. This is Reb Tzadok talking. People say the world is getting further and further away from God. He says, I say, the world is getting further and further away from God on the outside and is coming closer and closer to God on the inside. And if, I know that was what was going on, on with me. If you looked at my outside, you'd go, that guy, no way. But on the inside, I was really doing chazor. I was really thinking about life. I was thinking about all of these things. And on the inside, I was coming closer and closer. And so this is the moment that I'm building up to. I remember lying on my bed, and I was thinking, well, I believe that God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai. And then I'm going to tell you this next thought that came into my head, because it changed my life. And it's going to sound obvious, but it hit me like a thunderbolt. I thought to myself, if I really believe that God gave the Torah to us at Mount Sinai, and I did, that means I have to do it. That was an earth 
slash life-shaking thought. And then slowly, slowly, in my own way, you know, I tried in earnest to, to again, go from the open book to the open world, which is the open book, which is made out of the fabric of the Torah. Because the world itself, reality itself, is made out of the fabric of the Torah itself. And to begin to take my first steps into the real world, but to be the person who knows what it is. In other words, I took the lottery ticket out of my wallet and I checked the numbers and they matched. <laughs> I was like, yo, <laughs> welcome to reality. So, so with that in mind, I want, to, I want to tell you something that the Ishbitzer Rebbe says, and that's the Me'e Shaloch, one of the, the, the deepest, deepest, deepest thinkers ever. And he says something great. He starts off with a, a question, a halachic question, that a lot of people have never even considered, which is, when you make the blessing over the challah, and you're going to cut the challah, where do you cut the challah? Now, believe it or not, this is a question the sages in the Gomorrah in Sanhedrin, page 102, they ask themselves this question, or they, they put it out for us. So it's just interesting that they would wonder such a thing. Right? Like, what more do you need to know? Here's the bread. We're going to make a blessing over the bread, or we're going to cut the bread. Why are you even asking this question? Okay, that's a question itself, and I don't have an answer, but I just, you know, just before you even hear a question, you should just like, just like marvel over the question. So, so anyway, I'm going to give you the answer, but we have to build up to the answer. And then I'm going to give you the Ishbitzer's explanation of the answer, and, and that's even more amazing. So... So before we get into it, let's talk about why do we make blessings at all? Okay, because this is, this is, because when we're cutting the bread, this is going to be tied into making a blessing, right? Because that's preparing us to eat the bread. Okay. And by the way, this is a very good thing to be learning right now because we just learned about the fact that we have to build this Mishkan that was the prototype of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And one of the key things in it was the Shulchan. That, that means a table. And it was made out of gold, and there was a border around it, and we had 12 challahs, 12 loaves of bread on it, that miraculously stayed fresh all week. Now, I'll just tell you a Kli Yakar, one of the great Torah commentators, that's a, a life-changing idea about the, the shulchan, the table itself. He said, why did you have to make a gold border around it? Now listen to this. Listen to this. And by the way, just to give you a little bit more context, this golden table was the focal point where all of the blessings for wealth came into the world. Because bread, even in like 1960s lingo, hey, do you have some bread? Bread has always meant cash, right? Bread has always meant money. So if in the Holy Temple, this is where the bread was, which is the staff of life, sustenance. So it makes sense. It's logical that the blessing of wealth was coming down to that place and then going out around the world. And not only that, but we say that our tables, like our Shabbos tables, is sort of like a replica of the Shulchan, of this table, from the Holy Temple. So, so when we make motzi, that's like, that's like a very special moment to bring down like this blessing. And I had this special kavana, which is that, you know, like most chalas, like during the year anyway, they're kind of shaped like they're long and straight, like the letter Vav. So in other words, it's like 
when you hold up the chalas, it's like if you think of the name of Hashem, Yud Ke Vav Ke, the, the idea is that that Vav of God's name is bringing down God's blessings, right? God's, God's holy energy into the bottom hay, which all the rabbis, all the rabbis explain that bottom hay of God's name stands for this dimension that we live in, right? So you're sort of like, here it is, you're making the blessing over bread at your table, which is the headquarters of sustenance, and you've got your challah, which is the letter Vav, and you're bringing down that blessing into your house and into the whole world. Okay, that's something that you can have in mind. Now, someone said to me, yeah, there's only one problem, which is that the letter Vav is spelled Vav Vav. And then I thought, you have two chalas. You know, so that, that was like a nice moment. <laughs> All right, so now let's get to the idea of the border. And I want to tell you, I had a conversation with my eldest son a number of years ago. And, you know, he was into finance. He wanted to go into business and everything like this. And so, you know, I said to him, how much money do you need? I mean, how much money do you need? Like, for your life. Like, have a number that you want to make. Because the idea, like, that in itself is a bit of a shocking kind of idea. Like, what do you mean have a number? How about, is more a number? <laughs> Like, I once saw that the definition of enough, listen to this, listen to this. The definition of enough is a little bit more than I have. <laughs> See, that's what the world wants to tell us. That whatever you have, it's never enough. Because really enough is always going to, it doesn't matter how much you have. Really, the definition of enough is always going to be a little bit more than you have. Okay, now we can get to the Kliyakar. Listen to this amazing thing. He says, okay, the table is the headquarters of wealth, and it's made out of gold. Put a gold border around it, meaning to say, have a definition in your mind of what is enough. And I went back in that conversation where I was prodding my son to make a number. I, and he's like, well, you know, I got to figure out how much a house costs and how much education is going to cost. And here's the thing. I didn't care whether it was going to be accurate or enough. I said, it, you can change the number. Over the course of your life, you can change the number. I just want you to say a number. And finally, he said a number, and I said, great. Because you know what that number was? That number was a reconciliation in his own mind that there was a point called enough. And so, really, the society that we live in today wants you never to get to that point. Right? Because you, just to be like a, a hamster on the treadmill. Remember, when Moshe Rabbeinu shows up in Egypt to like begin the process of freeing the Jews, it says that Paro counteracted by making more work for the Jews. In other words, the, the idea was... Russia occupied about 7% of the Indian territory when it launched its invasion. The idea was, let's keep people off balance enough that they can never have the, just the, the peace of mind, the space to absorb the message. And so, so that's what society tries to do with us today by telling us there's no such thing as enough. But we know that there is. Okay, good. So, so again, we have a question. What's our question? Where do you cut the challah? <laughs> All these things are going to tie together, believe it or not, okay? Where do we cut the challah? And so the Ishmael Rebbe says, you know, the answer that the sages give is really tied to a debate about blessings. And there are two contradictory verses in the Torah. 
One verse says the entire world belongs to Hashem and everything in it. The other verse says God has given it to mankind. So how do we reconcile these two opposite, these two opposite verses? Does everything belong to God or does everything belong to us? And so come the sages of the Gomorrah and they say, before you make a blessing, everything belongs to God. After you make a blessing, now it belongs to you. And that is the source of making blessings. Because really, think about how many blessings we have. We have so many blessings. There's so many blessings in the Torah that we have to say. Before doing a mitzvah and over rainbows or like mountain, beautiful mountains or flowers or all sorts of things. There are blessings to make. But 99% of those blessings are crafted by the rabbis. There are only two blessings that are in the five books, the Chumash itself. And of those two, one is way more clear than the other. But of the 613 commandments, two of them are to make blessings. Which are those two? The first one is to say, Birkat HaMazon, grace after meals. That's one of the 613 commandments. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. The second one is to say a blessing over the Torah study. Before you begin Torah, say a blessing. That's why it's important, like, to say it in the morning, like before you even leave the house, right? Like I, I remember I was walking with Rabbi Gedalia Gerfine one time and he, it was in the morning, we were walking to shul and he wanted to share a Torah thought with me. I said, I didn't, I didn't say the blessing over the Torah yet. So I stopped on the sidewalk, I said it and he went, Shoo! all right, now you got your force field around you, you know, now, now it's gonna work. And, and so anyway, the idea is Torah is not just a more elevated form of conversation. A blessing has to be made, right? That's, that's a, a level of yira, a yira. That this, you're talking about another level of transmission when you're talking Torah with each other, and it requires a blessing to be made. Okay, very good. But really, the way they learn out that you have to make a blessing before Torah study is a little bit cryptic in the, in the phraseology of the Torah itself, whereas grace after meals couldn't, couldn't be more straightforward. When you eat and you're satisfied, bless God. Very, very, very straightforward. Okay, now let me tell you why that's so amazing. That blessing is so amazing. Because many cultures have the idea of a blessing grace before the meal. Right? I mean, how many TV shows have you seen where the family is sitting around the table and maybe they're holding hands or whatever it is? And it's very beautiful. They say an acknowledgement that the food is coming from God. Many cultures have this idea. But that's not the Torah commandment, at least of the 613. It's after your belly is full and you don't need God. God says, that's when I want you to think about me. <laughs> Not when you're hungry and you need the food. I want you to think about me when you're full and you don't need me. And that now is going to become the epicenter of all blessings that we make. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Okay. So now, remember, we still have our question before us. Where do we cut the challah? <laughs> we haven't forgotten about our question. We have to learn a little bit about blessings before we get to the answer that he gives. So now, the idea is, when I make a blessing, I acknowledge that what I'm about to eat, say, comes from God. And that's an awesome thing. Or... To put it back into the two contradictory verses, the whole world belongs to Hashem, and then the other verse says, he gives it to us. Well, is it God's or is it ours? Well, in the beginning, before we make a blessing, it's God's, and then after we make a blessing, it's ours. 
What's dangerous about that? This is me asking you. What's dangerous about that? Because once I say that it's, once it's given to me, I can forget about God. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, and this is among, what I'm about to point out, is among the best of us. It's a problematic thing among the best of us. Which is, I think that most people go through life the following way. And I'm talking about people who are really trying and working, right? They show up to show for chakras, and then afterwards they go, they don't say these words, but this is what's going on. Okay, goodbye God, see you at Mincha. Like, wait a minute, where did God go? God didn't go anywhere. Or, I'll give you another version of it. You wash for a meal, and then it's sort of like, okay, see you, God, at, at, at benching. <laughs> Bye-bye. Now it's just me and the steak. <laughs> Little alone time. <laughs> me and the steak. You know, Rabbi, Rabbi Green said that children and and, and, and your mother have two things very much in common. And God. Children, your mother, and God have something in common. Let's say that you, you are in your room, right? And you want to be alone. So you say to, let's say your mother, you say, Ah, oh, Mom, you know, I just want to be alone right now. And then she closes the door and she says, okay, we're alone. <laughs> right? A child will do the same thing. I just want to be alone. Okay, we're alone. And for sure, God, it's like, God, I just want to be alone right now. Okay, we're alone. <laughs> no, 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 I just, just want to be by myself. Okay, we're by ourselves. <laughs> right? So this is so much of life, so much of life is living with this consciousness and in the best way. The idea that you get to be with God all the time. Right? I get to be with my best friend with, all the time. I, I get to be with the master of creation who, who nothing is difficult for. One of the things that I heard Reb Shlomo say over and over again, and I... It, just, it's so powerful. He would just say, he would lament. He would say, why are you making God so small? Why are you making God so small? You know, one of the things, and again, it's not logical, but it's just sort of like our, our emotions do this, is that when we feel as though we're stuck, we kind of project that frustration onto God, and we think that God is also stuck. And intellectually, we know that's not the case, but that's not our emotional reality. So, so what is the problem? The problem is, is that after I make a blessing, it's possible for me to forget about God. Now, consider the irony of that for a moment. Because the whole idea of making the blessing to begin with is to bring God into my life and to acknowledge God. And yet, it's possible once I make the blessing that I can forget about God. And even worse than that, I can feel sort of righteous in my forgetting about God because I made the blessing. Now God, leave me alone. Now it's me and the stake, right? I did my thing, God. You know, just <laughs> let, me, let me be alone. Okay, we're alone. <laughs> All right, now we can get to what the Ishbitzer says. He says, do you know what the, what the rabbis answered where you're supposed to slice the bread? He says, the place where the crust is the hardest. All right. That's what the Gomorrah says. Now listen to what the Ishbitzer does with this. He says, all right. Imagine how much work goes into making bread. First, you've got to plant the fields, right? Then you've got to water them. Then you've got to take the harvest, the, the wheat. Then you've got to grind the kernels. Then you've got to mix it with water. Then you've got to shape the, the dough. Then you've got to arrange the loaves in the, in the oven. Right, that whole process can take 
maybe a year, right, if you think about it. And you, each time you're investing effort and effort and effort, the message that's being sent to us is that I am doing this. And the Ishbitzer says, you know what you're not doing? You're not picking the spot on the bread which is going to have the biggest amount of crust on it. <laughs> he said, that is something that you can't predict and that is something that's coming from heaven. That's coming from God. And so when you come to the moment that you're going to cut the bread, God is giving us a reminder that you didn't do all of this. I was the force behind the whole thing and allowing it all to happen. And the fact that this piece of crust is going to be on a different piece of challah and it's always going to be different wherever it is, that's the X factor of God reminding you that ultimately he has control and he's running the show. And now look how it's the antidote to me saying, now that I'm making the blessing, it belongs to me and I'm forgetting about you. Because I can't forget about you, God, because you're reminding me that this entire process has been supervised by you. <laughs> In the most amazing way. So that's, that's a classic Ishbitz. And, and one of the reasons why I, I really like that is because you have here the intersection of thought and life. Right? Because, you know, one of the deepest things I ever heard Reb Shlomo say was, the world doesn't work in a one plus one equals two. And when you can take Torah, and it's not about just sort of like, well, what does this passage mean? And it's a conversation and it's an intellectual exploration. That's very good. But when you can take Torah and then apply it to how do I go through life and all of the X factors of life, which part of the challah is going to have more crust on it and how that's going to bring me back to a recognition of God and the fact that the entire world is the text that I'm dealing with. That's awesome. That becomes awesome. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.